Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 3 of Well Said, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's new podcast where we talk with students, faculty, and staff about what's going on on campus and around the world. And today we're talking presidential and congressional elections with Assistant Professor of Political Science, Sarah Truel. So we'll kick this thing off today kind of in your wheelhouse as somebody who specializes in Congress. What are some of the big storylines you're seeing in the congressional races this year? The congressional elections are really interesting this year in 2016. Obviously, the attention is all sort of going to the presidential elections right now, but it's a fascinating year, both in the Senate, and it's turning out to be even more fascinating in the House than was previously expected. Right now in the United States Senate, we certainly have a Republican majority. It's a pretty safe majority in some ways, but what's interesting about that when you dig a little bit deeper is the fact that most of the seats that are up this year in the Senate are held by Republicans, and they're held by Republicans in what we would typically think of as blue or at least purple states. So there's the potential that a lot of those members in the United States Senate currently from the Republican Party are not as safe as they might typically be. That means that the Democrats actually have a legitimate chance of taking over the majority in the United States Senate. Part of that is because back when these seats were up last time was in 2010. And 2010, if we can recall, that election was when we first saw the Tea Party insurgency. And what that means then is a lot of Republicans sort of rode that wave into that election in 2010. And now those are the seats here in 2016 that are up for re-election. So Democrats really do have a chance to take back some of those seats and maybe even a majority. That's probably the biggest storyline with regards to congressional elections. I think it's been further complicated by the presidential election and who's going to be at the top of the ticket, especially on the Republican side. And certainly we can talk more about that. And I think added to that now is the dynamic of the appointment to the Supreme Court and the role that the Senate elections might be playing in that or not in that, as the case may be. But all that is certainly going to affect who becomes the majority party in the United States Senate moving forward. Are people selected based off their policy, or is it really just a situation where whoever already has the seat wins again? The main thing that drives congressional elections is incumbency still. So when we're looking at both House elections and Senate elections, we're still seeing re-election rates in the 90% mark for the most part. So what that means is, If you've been in the House before, you have that name recognition, you have successfully brought things back to your district, and that's a huge advantage to you going in. So unfortunately, that doesn't mean people are looking at the candidates' policy platforms or spending a lot of time getting to know the challenger in the campaign. Most people are just voting with who they feel comfortable for, and that's for both parties. There's not a whole lot of digging deeper and trying to figure out what it is that we're assessing in different types of candidates. The Senate is a little bit more competitive, and then in those conditions, what we start to see is people, just like in presidential elections, choosing to emphasize what we call the fundamentals as political scientists. So how is the economy going? And if you feel better off right now than you were last time there was a Senate election, you're more likely to reward that incumbent. If you don't, you might look to the challenger. Another thing that people like to do is think about the balance of American government. And we'll see sometimes people say, well, if the Democrats going to win the presidency, let's try to keep the Senate in the Republicans' hands. Those types of decisions also seem to play out in congressional elections for the American public. Do you see an issue with this trend of the incumbent typically winning? Is this a pretty big problem for Congress? Most certainly. And there is obviously this stalemate going on in Congress right now, and people are frequently lamenting that Congress gets nothing done and Congress refuses to be bipartisan and refuses to compromise. But yet we as the American voters are the ones that are continuously voting in that sort of gridlock, if you will. 
it is a problem in that things aren't being accomplished and we're dissatisfied with Congress at the same time. It really is this mentality that was coined back in the 1970s by a famous political scientist, Dick Fenno. The American electorate loves their member of Congress but hates the institution of Congress. And we see that playing out time and time again with this incumbency advantage, the fact that we're willing to send our member back to Congress and we think that he or she is doing a great job, but when it comes to the institution itself, we want to get rid of everyone else. And that's a problem. So you mentioned that a lot of people are just voting down through the party line and just selecting who's representing their party that year. But as American citizens, is that just kind of saying that we don't value bipartisanship and we are only going to elect somebody who fights for our views? So I think elections today are very much um, driven by the two parties themselves. So they are less about becoming a moderate and less about bringing in the moderates within your district or within your state or within the entire country, and more about appeasing the people on the extreme left or on the extreme right. And this, again, has led to many of the problems that we're seeing with regards to the lack of compromise then. I would say a driving factor in all of this is primary elections. The fact that our primary electorate tends to be much more extreme, both on the liberal side and the conservative side, as far as ideology is concerned, has really pushed both Republicans and Democrats who need to win primary elections more to those far outreaches of the party. And in doing so, it then becomes more difficult to moderate. And once you're in Congress and running for re-election, you fear moderating because, again, you're going to fear that primary challenge coming from someone who's more ideologically um, predisposed than you are. So all of that has factored into this, you know, don't compromise, don't give in, don't appease moderates, and, you know, stick it out. When did this no compromise attitude really take hold in the United States? Have we always been this way as a country, or can you actually point to a time period and say it started there? In many ways, the parties as we know them today began to crystallize in the 1970s during the civil rights era and during the time period when Southern Democrats started to become Southern Republicans. When we had Southern Democrats back in the 1960s into the 1970s, and even further along than that, what we saw were Democrats who were conservatives. And that sort of mixture of ideology within the two parties led to more compromises. Now that we have sort of perfect sorting when it comes to Democrats being liberals and Republicans being conservatives, that's when this shift to, you know, the two parties stand for distinct things and they can argue about them and do not necessarily have to compromise started. So let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about the headliner of 2016, and that's the presidential election. What are you seeing as some of the big storylines of the presidential races to this point? The big storyline in the presidential election this year, both in the Democratic Party and in the Republican Party, is this idea of do we need to move the party sort of more toward populism or do we need to take and continue on kind of a mainstream partisan approach? For the Republicans, that would be mainstream conservatism. For the Democrats, sort of a traditional liberalism, if you will. And so far, I would say populist types of candidates in both parties have been doing surprisingly well, that being Bernie Sanders on the left and Donald Trump on the right. Um, We are starting to see some changes within the Republican Party as far as people saying, maybe we don't want Donald Trump to be our nominee. And that's clearly going to have an effect on that party moving forward and what that means for the convention and the eventual nominee. But that being said, I think the biggest storylines are this direction that people want to see the country going. And there seems to be this call for either you know, more government intervention on the left, bringing in more policies, helping more people, or on the right, more of a you know, resistance to being involved and being engaged and you know, turning against that kind of traditional conservatism. 
Through the lens of political scientists, how would you describe the presidential race to this point? I would describe the current presidential race this year as fascinatingly scary. It's been enjoyable to watch, and that's the fascinating part, because it's been so unique and has forced us as political scientists to question so much about what we know about presidential elections and the presidential nominating process. We used to really think parties were able to pick who they wanted to be the nominee, even in a primary world. And that has clearly come under some scrutiny here in both parties this election cycle. But it is also scary because I think we're starting to see a world where the American electorate might be much more divided than we thought. There's a lot of theories in political science that talk about maybe it's just our elites, maybe it's just the members of Congress, maybe it's just the party activists that are the ones that are polarized in this country, and that most Americans, if we ask them, are fairly moderate in their positions. And it's not that we, as the general electorate, are extreme. It's that the party elites are. And I think this election and the divisiveness of it is starting to show us that maybe the American electorate is also incredibly divided. And that to me is a scary part. And not scary because people can't have their own thoughts and their own ideas. And that's one of the things that's great about democracy, but scary because we all are in this together. And if we really are so determined not to compromise and not to come up with moderate legislation that's going to be an appeasement of the Republican side and the Democratic side, that can become very problematic going forward from a legislative perspective. You mentioned that you would describe this presidential race as unique. What makes it unique? What's different about it? I think the thing that makes this presidential election the most unique is the party's lack of control of it. And I mean that in both the sense of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, but more so on the Republican side. Traditionally, even though we have primaries in this country, and since the 1960s, both parties have used them more or less as a legitimate way to pick the presidential nominee on your side, we are starting to see that parties really used to be sort of encouraging certain candidates and filtering money to certain candidates. And there really was someone that was the person the party was rallying around and support was rallying around. And again, we're not seeing that today. So that certainly is unusual. It is also unusual, though it has happened before, back in the 1930s, to have someone running for office who is so outside the party itself, and that being Donald Trump. It's not typical to have someone with no political experience running for uh, the presidency. That's very unusual. It's also, again, unusual to have contested conventions. We haven't seen that, again, in a few decades. And the fact that the Republicans might be moving toward that makes this an incredibly interesting election to be studying. Do you think some of these changes in the presidential election are a product of the 24-hour news cycle? I mean, the cameras are always on and always pointed at these people. The 24-hour news cycle and social media has been a major shifting point in presidential elections and also congressional elections. You cannot make mistakes now as a candidate. So you are constantly scrutinized by the media and the media is with you everywhere you go and you have to fill as the media 24 hours of news coverage. And therefore you are always looking for someone to make a mistake, for someone to say the wrong thing, for someone to be caught eating pizza with a fork as opposed to their hands. And these are the things that we now focus on and these are the things that get the American public's attention. So I think it really has shifted campaigns and elections away from policy positions, away from issues of legislative importance to 
more sort of pop news stories. And I think this has become a problem for the American voters because no longer are we even able to articulate what it is certain candidates stand for or the parties stand for. We're much more caught up in the glitz and glamour of campaigns and elections. It used to be the case that the American voters throughout the country tuned into the debates. There were only a few of them instead of one every week. And if you wanted to watch TV in your house that night, that was your option. Your option was to watch the debate. Your option was to watch the State of the Union address. You couldn't change the channel to watch Bravo TV or to watch ESPN. You really had to watch one of those major networks. And that was the news you would get. And then you would go back to the regular scheduled programming. The fact that people can so easily tune out the information they don't want and then get other information and in many ways superfluous information has really changed the dynamics of campaigns and elections moving forward. Adding to that, with the advent of social media, people can select the news coverage they want to see. So not only is it that there's so much information out there, but we see Republicans self-selecting or conservatives self-selecting into certain news mediums and Democrats and liberals doing the same thing. And what that means is that you get a slanted story. And so it's no wonder that we have Democrats on the left who say Republicans are terrible people and have awful ideas and, Dem and Republicans on the right saying the same thing about Democrats because those are the messages they are given in the blogs that they're reading or the um, Twitter feeds that they're following or on the cable news networks that they're watching. And that's definitely not the best way to pick the president of the United States. But the 24-hour news cycle and social media aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Do you see a time where it transfers back to a race of policy and not a popularity contest? Unfortunately, we're not going to go back to the world that we used to have with regards to the amount of news coverage that campaigns and elections see. I do hope that we find a way to live in this 24-hour news world that can become less about the oops moment or the mistake or the gotcha moment and much more about policy positions and things that actually matter in campaigns and elections. And I would think there is potential for that, that once the novelty of the how does someone eat pizza, for example, once that all wears off, it's become sort of a very boring story that we seem to have every election cycle. How many election cycles do we really have to go through that type of story? Eventually, I would hope that members of the media would come back to earth and say, let's actually cover what's important. But in my opinion, most of this falls on the shoulders of journalists and falls on the shoulders of the media. Step up and cover what needs to be covered. Tell the American people what is happening. Tell them what people stand for. Tell them the consequences of decisions and trust them to then make the right ones. Thanks for listening to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hills podcast and check back to unc.edu next week for another episode of Well Said.